Now, stay tuned, because another 99th episode is coming up right now. Off to a great start already. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I think we should call it quits now before we uh, go downhill. I know, right? Uh, it's, uh, we really peaked in this moment. <laughs> that synchronized start was truly our best. Have a good day. All right. Thanks for listening. Ah, so, post-Thanksgiving episode. Oh, uh, yes. And end of everybody else's long weekend. Um, it's the end of my long weekend of work. I'm off today. I'm enjoying that. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've had the last four days off. Or not, well, the la- I guess the last three days off. And today is the fourth. It's been quite, quite nice. Yeah. Someday I'll have a job like that again. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's good. I think it's good. It's nice knowing when I'm going to work, but at the same time, it's, this is the kind of job where, oh, hey, you've got to work till 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I imagine yeah. you may get that too, actually, probably in, in your life. Yeah, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah the, the, yeah, the thing that is hard for me is that there are times when I should be off that I end up having to work or something like that. And it's not just like, oh, this, I mean, like, we both deal with kind of similar things, but also you know when you're off, you're off, and nobody's going to call you up, and and you have to go in because of a problem or something like that. The same way, although that might come up sometimes, everybody deals with different stuff. The people who can go to work and go home, and when they're not at work, don't have to worry about work, are lucky. I I'm the type that's going to worry about it, even if I don't have to worry about it, because that's just something I need to improve on. But oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, my last job was much worse along those lines where I would get calls at all time of the day and night uh, at certain times in the project cycle. And that was very frustrating, especially when those calls are at 2 a.m. or something like that, <laughs> waking you up and, hey, you're on speakerphone in a conference room. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> but luckily, I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, that's that's one thing I haven't had to deal with. Yeah. Quite that. <laughs> yes. Hey, pluses and minuses. I think everybody has their challenges. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, no matter what you deal with or what you don't have to deal with, like everything is based on your perspective. So as easy as you could have it, there's still going to be those things that you stress out about because you're coming from your vantage point, you know, so to doesn't matter. We're all people dealing with stuff. Yeah. The one thing I, I kind of think that I've learned is that stress is stress. And it's kind of like the goldfish theory. You know how goldfish will grow to be as large as the, the tank you put them in? Mm-hmm. I think stress is that way also. Is it, it doesn't really matter what's causing the stress. It will grow to as big as your capacity to be stressed out is. So even if you're stressed out, about, oh man, I need to restock these shelves by noon and I have so much to do. Or, oh man, my company's about to lose a million dollars. It's oftentimes, it's the same feeling that you feel from both of those. It's yeah. that, that stress feeling is the same, regardless of what causes it. And I think the ability to just handle and process that feeling is one of the true skills and because there's always going to be something that stresses you out it may be some stress things that stress out may seem small to other people in comparison but it's all just the same feeling that we have exactly you know one thing that i do to put it in perspective whenever i do get stressed out about work stuff 
I think this thought, if I didn't have a job, would this stress even matter? If I didn't have a job, like anything I could have to do, I wouldn't care because if I didn't have a job and then could have a job, like to be able to pay my bills and provide for my family, wouldn't matter. So that puts a lot of stuff in perspective when I can feel overwhelmed about stuff. It's like, well, if I didn't have a job and then I got offered this job to do this exact thing, of course I would take it. I'd be ecstatic about it. Changes your perspective a lot. Hmm. That is a really good perspective. I like that. You know, a perspective I also liked is the perspective shared in God Loves, Man Kills. <laughs> <laughs> so Nice segue. Yeah. Should I slip something in about wrestling to screw up your segue again? No, no. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> so you had shown me that you got this book recently. I did. Yeah, you got the actual, I- like, original, the graphic novel format a slightly oversized printing of it, right? Yeah, and it's nice. Like, uh, you know, everybody, you get those people who are like, oh, physical media is better. I got to read the original issues. And, I mean, to an extent, sometimes I agree with that. Sometimes I think people are nuts, um, especially when they're like, I got to sniff these musty old comics. Oh. It's like, <laughs> yeah. um, there, there's a line that gets crossed there sometimes. Um, this one was, uh, like, it, the presentation definitely was nice. And I can definitely say that reading this digitally, uh, or even in a reprint, while would be fine, reading like the original graphic novel definitely did add a little bit to it. That is very cool. Yeah, the one thing I don't like about those graphic novels is the square-bound binding, and how it seems almost impossible to read it without creasing that square-bound binding. And... Mm. I had zero problem with that. Oh, well, I guess you're just better at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta have a gentle touch. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I have a hardcover printing of this. It's one of the... I don't know if Marvel's still doing them, but they were doing a lot of hardcover reprints of classic storylines, typically storylines that were between four and six issues or so. Like, I have Craven's Last Hunt this way. I have Weapon X printed in this format of hardcover i have and i have this god loves man kills printed yeah in i, I saw you uh you posted a picture of it and i think they also did um collections of some of the like marvel short or uh, not marvel obviously marvel x-men um like short mini series like uh there was the um the beauty and the beast one and you know like those kind of yeah. ones that were like a little more focused on specific characters they did like in the same printing yeah and I really like this set of hardcovers because it allows me to dip into stories that I'm interested in really easily and have stories that are kind of quote-unquote classics stories just sitting on my shelf there for whenever I want to pick them up. Yeah. I've only got like, I think, five or six of them, but I do enjoy them. Got to catch them all. Ah, no, there's like a hundred of them, I think, at this point. <laughs> You got some work to do. Ah, uh, well. Yeah, <laughs> didn't we have an episode about how I'm trying to decrease <laughs> the amount of stuff on my shelves, not increase it? Yeah. You know, an easy first step is just get rid of all your Valiant stuff. It'll uh, cut to the chase quickly. Uh, I could never do that, Paul. <laughs> I could never do that. Uh, I still have one Valiant thing. Really? Yeah, the hardcover of the Valiant uh, signed by Matt Kent and I believe... Dinesh, a friend of mine, 
I sent it to him, and he got it signed at a couple places. He was going to get Lemire to sign it, too, but uh, Lemire ended up canceling his appearance at that con because of illness. This is a few years ago already, but... Yeah, that'll be the one thing I keep. I really liked that story. Uh, I mean, Matt Kent and Jeff Lemire working together, and then Paolo Rivera doing the art, his dad, Joe Rivera, doing the coloring. Pretty cool. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I think, the best thing that Valiant's ever done. Yeah, probably. It's it's up there. It definitely, if it's not the best, it's in the top three, top five. But I mean, I, one. I, I I can't like I, <laughs> nothing immediately is coming to mind as something better. But I'm just giving myself wiggle room. Yeah, I don't need the wiggle room. I, I have decided my my stance a long time ago. On oh, okay, one, gotcha. Anyways, okay. Yeah, so back to God loves man kills. Uh, and so you showed me that picture, and I said, well, hey, I've got that too. So if you read it, I'll read it, and then yep. we can talk about it. We read it, and first of all, this storyline. So this isn't specifically what's in like the X Men movie. That's more about the senator, right? This is different, but like a lot of it kind of seems like maybe the movie drew some from this. The movie drew a lot from this, especially yeah. the second movie, because well, Stryker is the main villain in the second movie, except they make him an old army guy who is doing experiments. Um, Which he is an old the, army guy. But. As a military <laughs> instead of a religious guy. So yeah. they changed that to be less, be just they, a, they a religious condemnation of mutants and more of a secular condemnation of mutants. Yeah, they, they take a big step away from the, the religious side, which, um, you know, it, one thing I just got to say, this it was very nice to read a comic book and not have to, like, worry about there being political tones in it or anything. You know, God knows comic books should have nothing to do with politics ever, and I'm just thankful for that. Yeah, the the comics these days where they're trying to just, like, bring up some sort of a, an agenda or something or share some kind of political theory. Like, in back in my day, when, like, I read my old X-Men, there was just no politics in it. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is just about a guy trying to kill mutants. What's wrong with that? No, uh, this, I I think when I read this, my thought was, man, like if this came out today, people would kind of condemn it for being a little too on the nose. Yeah. And yeah. People the, would go nuts about it. Well, they, they would go nuts about it. But also I think it would be like, oh, uh, this is just like super blatantly a an attack of things that are going on today which i think is in a lot of ways brilliant about it because it's well it it shows something very unfortunate which is that i don't think that society has necessarily progressed very far in the 30 or so years since this was printed probably 35 years or so since this was printed yeah and uh, the the difference in society is that uh the things that this is calling out indirectly are now directly getting called out more. And I think that's why a lot more people are uncomfortable with it being called out. And so, you know, people who don't want to be called out for their attitudes, look at this and then now they, they know it's pointed at them and they say like, this shouldn't be this way. And it's always been that way. It's just now everybody's pointing their fingers at, uh, you know, people's, hate and biases and stuff like that and saying this isn't okay and the people that have just gotten by with ignoring whether or not it's okay for so long don't feel comfortable anymore 
I'm okay with their discomfort, to be honest. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, we, we need, need the discomfort. Yes, it's... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We need the discomfort. And there's a lot of discomfort in this book. I I'm, I think we're going to talk about this assuming that people out there have read it. But if you, for those that haven't read it, I think the really quick summary is that William Stryker is a reverend who has an anti-mutant agenda. And while his rhetoric is just anti-mutant, uh, he also has a group of purifiers, which are basically soldiers out to kill mutants. So he has that going quietly in the background to his public persona of purely just being all about the anti-mutant rhetoric. And so there's a, a showdown between the X-Men and him. He captures Professor X, brainwashes him into thinking he belongs on his side, using his mind as a weapon to try to kill other mutants, a la X2. And eventually the X-Men succeed in freeing him and winning the day. And it all ends at a showdown in a large very public church gathering in was it like Madison Square Garden or something like that some big I think so, yeah. some big venue where it's basically a, a huge arena church service going on one of the things i thought was funny reading this too is uh you know Claremont gets so much credit for what he did which is rightly deserved but he has some like tropes that he uses over and over too and i thought it was funny in this there's the part where uh Xavier you know, is manipulated into killing uh, Cyclops and Storm, right? And yes. they're like, they're dead. And then in the end, the answer is, they're oh, only he must have subconsciously dead. held back and just brought them so close to death that nobody could realize they were alive. That is totally a, a Claremont thing. Yeah, they're that dead. was... No, they they actually held back just a little bit. They didn't quite kill them. It's yeah. okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was the one moment where I was like, oh, "Okay, this is the comic book wave your hands, comic booky, comic booky, comic booky thing mm. that was going on." But that's really kind of the only moment I feel like in this where all the rest of it feels like it plays it fairly straight, you know, and not a lot of what I call comic bookiness to it. I think that. One thing that stood out to me is how well it really shows each of the characters and their the differences of uh, how they respond to things. It really shows their true character. And uh, the scene that stuck out to me was <clears throat> they're all sitting around the X-Mansion watching um, – a, a TV program where I think it's like a like a 2020 or Hardline or something like that, where it's Professor X and uh, William Stryker having like a head-to-head -head debate publicly on TV, and all the X Men respond to this uh, differently. Like Kitty gets extremely angry about it, and she's very vocal about it. Kurt kind of laments the hate and anger in men's hearts, but acknowledges that this is always going to be there and has a very kind of compassionate understanding take on it. And Wolverine is like, well, this might be a problem. And if it's a problem, we'll take care of it. And 
I think uh, all of the other X-Men too, he just really, it's like a showcase for nailing the X-Men's attitudes and their character. And I think you could give this book to somebody and say, okay, like here's a way to understand these X-Men and who they are. And it really showcases the differences between them. And I think sometimes in comics, character can be kind of lost especially when you just have an action book where everybody's just trying to fight the enemy where the character becomes basically their character is their superpower in a lot of ways yeah and it's like my character is that i'm fast my character is that i can fly but (laughs) that's not what we get here is we get in in this book we get well kitty's character is that she's uh, a hothead but also very brave and sometimes gets Uh, jumps into things without looking and gets in over her head. Wolverine's character is that he is always seems like he's not really taking anything seriously, but is also very serious about the way he approaches everything. And uh, Kurt is very much the compassionate understanding one who who will always find the light and goodness in uh, another person. And Peter is the one who's very caring and loving and wants to protect and take care of people. Uh, I, I think that is really highlighted really well in here. Yeah. And Magneto too. Uh, is this the first time that Magneto worked with the X-Men like this? Is this the first time that they broke down that just like hero versus villain, you know, dynamic between them? I'm not quite sure. The appearance of, uh, Magneto that would come most quickly in front of this was issue 150. And I I can't quite remember. I feel like issue 150 was the issue where things started to kind of take a turn where we, I think we like learn about Magneto's past and his wife with uh, Magda in that issue. It's the one where he sinks the Leningrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we start to see him as having more of an agenda just than just cackling villain who wants to take over the world. Yeah. Um, This definitely like strongly portrays him in that way of, uh, you know, being more complicated than just a villain. And yeah, like this is when Magneto gets good is when he's like this. And yeah, where it's basically, he's looking at all the same input as the X-Men he just arrives at a different answer and you can see how his answer is very understandable given his background and the things that have happened to him and the things that what life has taught him about the way that humans are going to respond to mutants. Yeah. I mean, in this, in this story too, this is a point where the X-Men uh, align their views with Magneto for a period of time because they realize that what they're fighting against, they can't go in with this um, sort of altruistic, be better than them, turn the other cheek mentality. You know, they have to do what has to be done. And I mean, you even see Nightcrawler do that. You know, he's he's ready to be vicious and he's threatening. And, you know, just like you said, Wolverine is already always ready to kill when he needs to. But even in this one, like Nightcrawler was ready to. Yeah. And he's one that doesn't cross that line unless it's absolutely necessary. So, you know, we've seen other times in other X-Men stories, like way later on, where Magneto is trying to lean more towards the X-Men side and follow the good guy path. But this is one where we see the X-Men 
you know, realized like circumstances are dire enough that it, they, they have to lean Magneto's way and it's the right answer. Yeah. And that is always, I think, uh, one of the best dynamics. I, I look at like the really good X-Men stories uh, that they're usually on two axes. Like there's, there's two axes of greatness in great X-Men stories. The first is the X-Men up against impossible odds where they have to succeed where it seems like there's no possible way for them to succeed. And those are going to be things like the Dark Phoenix Saga and the Brood Saga, stuff like that, where there's no possible way they can win, but they're going to persevere and do it anyway. And then the others are where the X-Men are, I guess it's the mutant as metaphor idea, where it's about them being up against a world that hates and fears them and how they take on and tackle this uh, this world here. I think that this is maybe the, the finest example of that theme of the X-Men being up against a world that hates and fears them. Like, I don't know if this is the best ever, but this is definitely the most uh, esse- essential is not the quintessential is the word I'm looking for. This is like the quintessential story of X-Men versus a world that hates and fears them. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously was written to be concise. You know, it's written to be a story all contained within uh, this one graphic novel, which definitely makes it read differently, quicker, easier than, um, you know, like reading month to month X-Men comics at the time. Um, Yeah. I, I started this out and I read a little bit and Last night, even I didn't like. I was too tired to to read. I was going to try to finish it last night, and I wasn't that far into it. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this done in time. Uh, and I got up a couple hours uh, before recording this morning, and I burned through the rest of it in like an hour or less. Once like once I got rolling, it rolled quickly because it wasn't. Let's take this little bit of a step in this issue, and then the next issue take a little bit more of a step. Like it had to get from here to there pretty quickly, and a lot of stuff happened in it. Yeah, I had a similar experience because I pulled mine out. And I kind of thought, oh, man, this is going to take me a while to read, isn't it? And then I got to reading, and then before I knew it, I was done. I just blew through it all in one sitting. Yeah, that's pretty much how it was. I mean, I read a little bit before my final read, but it pretty much was, like, practically just the last sitting. It's like once your mind gets fully engaged with it, then it's a lot easier to, you know, keep going and processing because you're not you're not in that state of like, okay, I'm trying to read this, but my mind doesn't really want to. And, you know, once you get hooked in, you're definitely hooked in pretty well with it. This is also good for anybody who maybe hasn't read um, older X-Men comics. Um, you know, like I've talked about this before. It was, it was hard for me to get in the rhythm of reading them. This would definitely be a good first step because it is, uh, you know, you, you see the end of the tunnel with the length of the book. and You know, you're getting the whole story in there. But definitely gets you into the rhythm of reading this more verbose uh, writing style of not only of comics in the you know the eighties and before, but also just of Chris Claremont. Yeah, I, that's that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way. It does feel like 
it comes from its time. It's like watching a really good movie from the 80s where you can tell, oh, this is from the 80s in a different time when they made movies differently, when dialogue was written differently and films were paced differently than they are today. But still, it is very good. And yeah, this this reminds me of that. So that's a really good point. It, it, it can be a very good uh, way to unlock that way to approach older stories for anybody that is has trouble with that yeah one more uh claremontism here when kitty's trying to escape and she finds the group of guys and she's like help me and then she realizes that you know she's in like inner city and these are like gangbangers or whatever and she's like oh never mind uh, and then the the purifier trying to catch her shows up <laughs> well the, the the like leader of the gang or one of the gang members says, and we'll pay her in kind, mi hermanos, blood for blood. What gangbanger says, and we'll pay her in kind? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a very well-read uh, one, <laughs> I guess. Bien is nigh, mi hermanos. That's, yeah. yeah. You gotta love that when Claremont just throws words in people's mouths that would never be there. Yeah. So... Uh, one thing I thought was really poignant in this, it really shows what this is about, is when Kitty has the fight at uh, Stevie Hunter's dance studio with that other kid who's basically mm-hmm. just being a jerk. And he totally, she totally calls out Stevie afterward and uses strong, strong language to do so. And, uh, like, language that you would never read in a book today. Like, it just wouldn't be printed. Yeah. And uh, basically just calls her out that, hey, Stevie, if he was spouting the same things that he's spouting, except about towards you and that you're black, you would not be responding with a, hey, just mellow out and let it go attitude. And that, I think, was a pretty darn powerful moment. And it's kind of, uh, I think, a a shame that that type of powerful moment, we probably wouldn't get anything that blunt coming from uh, an X-Men book nowadays. But I thought that that really was a really strong way to show what this mutant metaphor is all about. And how it relates to all, all, how it is a metaphor for all of these other uh, marginalized or oppressed or uh, types of people that are bigoted have bigotry against them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty blunt. Like slaps you in the face right away, and that's like right at the beginning of the book, pretty much too. Um, yeah. So it sets sets the tone right away, creates the the tension and discomfort, and doesn't allow you to to pretend that it's not there like without being explicit like that that's the bridge that very clearly shows like you know this the the mutant metaphor this isn't just as you know a fictional story that is you know apolitical and you know doesn't have a social agenda like this is to show you know the problems in society it all i mean before that even it starts out with two children being murdered for being mutants so, I mean, they, they draw the lines pretty clearly without just explicitly saying at any point that, you know, that this is a metaphor exactly for this. But, I mean, they make it as obvious. Like, you did, 
is why when you see people, you know, tweet stuff like, you know, there shouldn't be politics in comics, and you're just like, are you freaking serious? Like, this isn't this isn't even like subtle, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> they make it pretty obvious. But they also show, I mean, like Kitty's fighting with this like teenage boy in her dance class. Who there's so many things about this kid too. He's just such a little chicken shit. He punches a teenage girl in the face. Like I don't care if you know if you're you know a girl's fighting you. You don't punch a girl in the face like that uh, and then act like you're all tough and righteous. You know, trying to I don't know. Just so many things about it. But it also just goes to show like the you know how deep seated bigotry is and that you know the the people that you might not think of being a, a a player and a part in this like everybody can be you know so this teenage boy in a dance class is just as big of a culprit of building up the 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 bigotry and the hate as the people you would assume are are more likely to do that so in the end when you get to you know all the people at strikers big uh religious rally there that's what it's built up by it's like it's normal people you know it's it's all these normal people put together who are fostering these you know hateful thoughts and convinced that it's okay yeah i know it's i think it also it shows the strength of the mutant metaphor in that it's not directly a metaphor for any one thing it's not directly a metaphor for like racism or for sexism or for homophobia or anti-trans sentiment or anything like that. It's because it's, it's developed as its own type of oppression. It ends up being a, a perfect uh, analogy for any and all of those, depending on the situation. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about it is that it's not a direct metaphor for any one type of oppression. It exists as its own type of oppression in this Marvel universe. But in the, by doing that, it allows it to uh, play off of and inform so many other real world types of oppression that we have. And so you can see how 40 years ago, racism is uh, commented on as as much as like homophobia is now with the mutant metaphor and well now we're seeing it kind of go back and still be pertinent to uh racism as well it's it's very very potent yeah yeah i mean there's there's definitely lots of kinds of hatred i mean you could have biases against somebody for anything and being able to expose people to to a metaphor like this that might help open their thoughts and help them realize those biases. That's what's important is just being able to recognize. We all have biases. Like, it doesn't matter if we try not to or not. We have biases based on our experiences and, um, you know, our background and stuff like that. Um, we all have unconscious biases that we we can't rid ourselves of them, but it's about recognizing them so that way we aren't controlled by them. So... You know, hopefully mm-hmm. people, whenever people read something like this, it at least makes them think differently about stuff. I think also uh, along the lines of thinking differently, and if anybody starts to see a little bit of their own attitudes reflected in this, is that the part that was really poignant to me is when we get William Stryker's past, 
how we find out that he was driving with his wife and then had to deliver the baby and it was an abomination. And so he ended up just like burning the baby and wife in his car. And he thought that, okay, well, this must be the devil's doing in in the, basically he's, he's finding something external to blame his problems on. Yeah. So the situation on. He he doesn't just burn them either. He he stabs the baby to death. He breaks his wife's neck, and then he puts them back in the car that's leaking gas. Crawls in with them and lights it on fire. That's right. He gets yeah. blown clear from the car, so he survives. And then he has to make up reasons why all of this is somebody else's fault. It was all his fault. Yeah, he, exactly. His, his baby yeah. was mutated because of what he chose to do for a profession. He put himself and his family at risk. He caused this with his choices. And then he decided that the the baby was an abomination, deserved to die, that it was his wife's evil that caused it, and then grew that into this crusade against uh, against mutants. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's a really good way of explaining it, where he's, he's basically taking his anger at something he's done and finding a way to externalize it and say, well, it's not my fault. Like instead of being angry at myself, I'm going to be angry at this group of people, which I think is very poignant and resonant. And I think that we're seeing similar things happen today where I think people are angry at the way that society seems to be changing and is seems to be leaving parts of society behind and so all of a sudden it's immigrants fault or it's it's muslims fault or something like that where it mean you, you know that like they're not the ones causing the problem they're just part of this developing situation trying to get by as much as everyone else and to so to externalize the problems that you're facing as being the fault of somebody else, I think is where some forms of bigotry arise from. And I think that this book does a really good job of pointing that out with Stryker. Yeah. You know, when, when you know you're wrong about something, even if you lie to yourself and tell yourself that you're not, and then you double down on it because you have to lean more into know like this, this is this thing's fault. So you lean further into it. Then you got to keep on doubling down on it and keep on doubling down. Cause the only way to not admit that it's wrong and you're continuing down the wrong path is to keep on convincing yourself more and more. And that's when you go from being angry at mutants in this example to being willing to kill a mutant just for being a mutant saying they deserve to die for being a mutant because you blame them for, x thing but only when you know that that's wrong and it's just lies you tell yourself to have an excuse for why things are the way that they are and to have no culpability you keep on pushing and you keep on pushing and you end up i mean that's exactly what striker did he took that from you know this personal thing to now it's a massive agenda and he's ready to you know incite the masses cause genocide and it's it's preying on people's uh you know fears and their biases and 
when you tell people that, uh, you know, all these negative thoughts that you have that you've in the past at least like felt bad enough about to try to keep them private, guess what? They're all okay because I say they are and you should feed into all these things. Then people run with that. And I mean, we we're, we see that a lot in, in society and this like this comic is, you know, very much showing how you get from point A to point B in hatred yeah yeah i'm i'm really happy this exists and i'm really happy that this is one of the blueprints of what the x-men is about because i think that this acknowledging that and making that part of what the x-men is all about is what elevates it from just being superheroes that do good and fight against bad guys and something that has a lot more punch and meaning to it. Yeah. I trying yeah. to think, I, I'm, like, I don't want to say anything like specifically like political or like slanted to my viewpoints or anything. So it's like really hard to talk about this in today's society. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think I've kind of shared a little bit of my stance on, on what I think about things and it's, yeah. it's hard not to, when yeah, th- talking about this book yeah you know I, I think just what it comes down to is that um if your actions like i think we should all aim for our actions to be driven by um empathy and compassion and you know when we're debating what the right choice is with stuff it's not simple and it's really easy too for for anybody or any side to say you know well your side is just wrong and we choose like one little thing that's i mean just like you know striker does with blaming mutants for this thing you choose one thing that's related to it and then you dump everything that's wrong on that thing we all can do that both sides of any argument can do that and you know in in our world politically and every other way like we can do that on both sides and when either side does that it just makes matters worse so if you want to make things better if you want to make yourself better you look at the things that you do that are not acting with empathy and compassion and you start there and start changing those things and you start changing your decisions based on how can I do this differently if I'm thinking with empathy and compassion. One thing uh, I've started applying a lot recently when I'm thinking about people or when I'm, you know, trying to help uh, the the people that it's my responsibility in, in, you know, my life and my job and stuff to develop is, you know, when you have an interaction with somebody, however the interaction goes, how does it change your viewpoint if you stop first and think, like, what if this person is doing the very best they can right now? How does that change how I look at how they're how they're acting? How can I act differently? Like, regardless of how they're acting, like, I can still choose to act with empathy and compassion regardless of whether they are acting appropriately or not. Uh, or you know, whether I, you know, whatever, I like how they're acting or anything like that. Um, It's all within us and blaming other people for our choices, even if they're setting us up for it, is just us taking the easy way out to not be as good as we can be. Hmm. That's a really, really good perspective. I like that a lot. Actually, that's something that I'm probably going to take away is, is that way of looking at other people and imagining, okay, that, if maybe this is the best that they can do at this point. And, you know, it may be, it isn't even necessarily a reflection on 
who they are and what their capabilities are because it, you know are what the best we can do at any given point changes from day to day and from circumstance to circumstance. Hmm, I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, we all know that that we we have times where we're at points where because of factors not in our control, we're not at our best. We're at our worst quite possibly. And we all can look at our circumstances and say, you know, well, I just found out right before I walked in the store that my mom has cancer. So I walked in there and I was in a fog and I don't even know how I acted. Everybody that we're interacting with could be like, look at this asshole, you know. But if they knew what we were going through, they they wouldn't feel that way at all. But the thing is, you can't know what people are going through, but you can you can have a positive or negative impact on them by making the right choices as an individual and treating people the right way, regardless of their actions or any other external factor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I was going to follow up on something you said a little while ago, we were kind of talking about um, how it's hard to not talk about politics a little bit, but I think that one thing that you can really easily say is that I think that, what this book shows is that the best way to approach this is to be more like Nightcrawler and that he seems to be the most understanding and compassionate. And no matter if you're coming at this from more of one side politically or another side politically, I think always the answer is going to be to try to approach people with opposing views with compassion and understanding rather than with anger and blaming. And I think that that is true no matter where on the political compass that anybody may fall and, and where they're coming at anything from. Yeah. Well, that was a nice lighthearted discussion. I know, right? (laughs) You know, one thing uh, that I, I just wanted to say about this that I hadn't gotten to was that at the very end, I think we see, really good cyclops and we've talked about cyclops before on here how sometimes he just seems like a boy scout doughboy like oh who cares about cyclops right but here's well i think where a lot of his character really shows through where he is the true believer in xavier's uh, mission even when xavier isn't always and that cyclops is strength of his belief in Xavier's view of the world is so strong that he's even able to pull Xavier out of his funk about it. And I thought that that was a, a really great Cyclops moment at the, towards the very end of this book. It, you know, everybody plays different roles and like, he's the one that's always consistent. Sometimes it could be to a fault, but it still is a, you know, it's a personality and you know personality trait in a way that people actually are and yeah that's definitely a good moment when you get to see him after getting through something tough like doesn't just have to be that rigid no this is what we do but you know maybe you know you see that glimmer of hope more than just uh duty yeah Mm -hmm. okay all right so we ready to move on from from the heavy duty discussion god loves man kills (laughs) yeah i'm worn out now (laughs) I know, right? Okay. Well, I, I want to uh, pick it up a little bit. So you told me over the weekend that you got the last issue, 
you need to complete your run of Uncanny X-Men from 94 to 300. You know the worst thing though is I'm missing an issue, and I swear I, I swear I had it too. I went through all my issues to make like to make sure and to like update my list because now like my next target is gonna be completing um three twenty six through five forty three because I have five forty four. Oh, okay. Um, so basically, I have about forty issues left to get to complete. 94 to the end of the first run of Uncanny X-Men 544. Cool. I realized, though, I was missing missing issue 174, and I swear I had this issue. But it's already been uh, been fixed. Uh, I, I bought a lot off of eBay, so it's on its way. <laughs> it's been purchased, so... Uh, but yeah, oh man, that just... I, I had this happen before, too, with um, with uh, Valiant. I was missing an issue of Exo Manowar... And I, I hundred percent know I had the issue too. So it wasn't even like I thought I got it and I didn't because I read the damn thing. In this case, though, I mean, there's a chance I just logged it wrong because this was an issue that I probably had the first time I was collecting because I had completely sold my collection at one point before, and I only started collecting again like maybe a year and a half ago. But yeah, mm-hmm. so now, like, once I get this in the mail, I will be done with uh, ninety four through three twenty five. Will be what I have, you know, the whole run of that. Um, I have a handful of pre-94 issues. I just kind of grab those when they come across my plate for, like, real cheap. Because, like, I, I'm never going to get the whole collection. I know that, that I'm, that's not going to happen because I'm never going to get number one. Um, but, you know, when I, I got... So, I, I on Black Friday, I went down to the uh, the comic shop that is my most local comic shop. It's, like, 30 or 40 minutes away from where I live. And... On Black Friday, one of the things that they do is they put out a crap load of dollar bins. The The interesting thing about this comic shop is it's really just kind of like a way for this company that makes their money selling high-end stuff online to sell all the low-end crap, basically. Uh, so, you know, they they have a storefront and they put a lot of stuff out there. But, like, really, like, the, this is the secondary business to the primary business of buying collections and selling the valuable pieces of it. Uh, you know, in, in more direct ways. Hmm, okay, cool. So they put out all these dollar bins and I grabbed, I think it was Uncanny X-Men number 59 for a buck. Nice. It's, it's pretty beat up, but it's definitely worth more than a buck. Like it, it's the kind that I would, you know, like if I had the money and found it for 10 bucks, I would buy. Um, but that's, uh, you, I shared with you, I bought um, this man, this monster for a dollar. Cool. Because it was a uh, missing. Well, yeah, tell it's us because about it. yeah, it's uh, it's one of when when you know newsstands or whatever when they don't sell something, they have to send something back. So they would cut the title off of it and send it back, and then they still have the rest of the comic book because they're not going to mail all that crap back. You know, the the distributor just wants proof that they didn't sell the book, basically. So those end up still floating around. So I, I grabbed that. And it's so funny, too, because the part that's cut off, like, the image works pretty well, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I got Fantastic Four 51, iconic issue. Uh, and it'll be the first entire Jack Kirby comic I ever read. Cool. For a dollar. And it's something I would never never have gotten otherwise. I, although I did look, and it's a quite affordable issue for being something that is, like, so legendary. Yeah, it's it's one of those, I think, because it's not a first appearance, it's weird because it's bracketed by huge issues because mm-hmm. you've got 
48, 49, and 50, right before it, which is the Galactus saga with the first appearance of Galactus and Silver Surfer, and then Silver Surfer's origin. And then on the backside, you've got 52, which is the first Black Panther. <laughs> so <laughs> that, it, That's crazy. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, man. And all of those books are now just huge monsters of collectible books. Yeah. And uh, then right in the middle of it is just this kind of poignant story just about the Fantastic Four, but still just such an iconic story. Yeah. Yeah. First appearance is crazy, man. Collector's okay. market. Um, so I've, I've got some <laughs> questions for you. Okay. Because one thing that I've found and one thing I tried to do is interact with my collection more. Because otherwise, I think there's a danger of, okay, I completed this collection. I'm going to put it in this long box and not look at it for five years, <laughs> which is unfortunate because you, we spend so much time trying to get these collections. And then they're actually, they're kind of hard to interact with sometimes. Like I have a giant X-Men collection, but I don't interact with the fact that I own these very often. I'll, most of the time, I just spend them sitting in boxes right i mean it's it's kind of weird like that's what yeah. my collection is it's just well, especially nowadays it's so easy yeah. to read stuff digitally or get a trade or something like that you know it makes it really easy you don't collect them to read them again you collect them just to collect them and i mean we've talked about this before but like one thing i try not to do is to just collect to collect and that's actually part of the reason why i decided to sell pretty much everything but x-men so i got x-men and then I got um, some random like TMNT and Usagi, which those I kind of figure I'll loosely collect those. But I also like TMNT. I know I'm never going to have the whole collection because I'm never going to have TMNT number one. Mm-hmm. And I also don't really care to spend hundreds of dollars for, uh, you know, a second, third, fourth, whatever printing of TMNT number one. So, you know, I, I can kind of grab those when they just fall in my lap without feeling like compelled to complete some bigger collection, you know? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I've got a couple questions just to get your mind going to interact with this collection a little bit more. Okay. All right, so what issue was the hardest to get? Uh, That's a, you know, that's a tricky question because up until I got towards the end, I just kind of got what came across my my path like there weren't too many that i specifically sought out until i got down to not having that many i didn't even really aim to to do what i did until an affordable enough copy of 94 came across my path and i wasn't seeking it it just came Mm -hmm. across my path i kind of like i would check on ebay from time to time i had an idea of you know what the low-end copies would sell for and i found a copy of 94 at the comic shop i was just talking about and the price was similar to the lowest prices I had seen online, but the lowest prices I had seen online were for some nasty copies. Uh, so seeing the difference in that, and plus uh, the the manager of the comic shop offered me 10% off on it. Um, so it was actually 10% cheaper than the cheapest copy I could find online. That's what made me go for it with that one. So like even, even 94 wasn't the hardest one to get because I wasn't even trying to get it until it just happened. I would say the hardest one to get what well a, a couple one is Moira McTaggart she's the one that that's um been really big in Remender's relaunch right Hickman's 
Hickman, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to get names right. And Hickman's... <laughs> so, yeah. So, because of that, her first appearance was getting expensive. And so, I was looking and looking, and I finally found a copy that was um, quite reasonable in my eyes, price-wise. But it still, it, it took some looking, and it took some patience. Then, finally, I found somebody listed one that I was able to snap up with a bite now, and I was quite happy with it. Um, it's not that that was the most expensive one that I got, but just that the price had uh, had risen above what I had wanted to pay for it. Um, you know what I thought was reasonable, and it was all because of uh, of Hickman, that son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that one was difficult. Quite a few. There were quite a few earlier ones like that. There were first appearances of random characters that were you know a little bit more difficult. The other ones that were uh, a bit trying was uh the days of future past issues those two issues and looking around so like that there's another comic shop that's about 40 minutes north of me the other one's south of me uh and they had both of those issues and are they 151 152 is that the right numbers i think it's 151 152 um that's just off the top of my head but uh no. Whatever issues there. No. no. 141, 142. There we go. I was close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 141, 142. 141 they had for like 125 bucks, and 142 they had for 50 So in those ones, like, it's, it's nice when you can see the issues, like, with your own eyes because you see the flaws and you kind of have a better idea of what you're getting. You know, pictures, online scans, like, don't do the same justice. Yeah, that's why I like to buy all my old X-Men books at comic conventions. Yeah. And I, I don't have that option, so it definitely makes it tougher. But yeah, so I, I, you know, I knew that they were priced that way there. I looked around online and stuff like that. You know, I, I one thing I'll do is I'll go to mycomicshop.com, and like I usually don't buy from them, but I use it as kind of a, a litmus test for pricing. Typically, I want to spend less than their lowest price on an issue, unless like their lowest price is just for really low quality, and I can I can make the comparisons, you know. Mm-hmm. I believe on there they didn't even have any that weren't consignment and high-priced, high-grade issues. So that's, that's always something that's telling to me is that um, you're lucky to find a fairly priced, low-grade issue on them. I found uh, a lot of the two issues on eBay, and I bounced it off uh, my friend Dennis, who is a, a big collector and has almost a complete run of X-Men. And um, he told me the price that they were asking was too high. I offered to buy it now that was much lower they countered higher i bounced that off him he's he said no it's too high for the the condition i ended up making a lower offer because I, I was balancing between what what my friend who's knowledgeable about value says but he also has more opportunity to make purchases than i do and also is more willing to pay more for a higher grade um so our like his opinion is val- you know very valuable to me but it also isn't the final decision maker at any point so I balanced that with the prices I was seeing. I wanted to get it before it just continued to climb and became unattainable. Uh, I've you know been buying X Men long enough to kind of see that happen with stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I finally was able to get those two issues uh, for a price that was fair, and I think that um, the one forty one was the better sh- in the better shape. One forty two had a bit of a like. Um, a cover tear like a, you know how if you get like tape on something and you pull it off like it doesn't tear the cover but it lifts off a top layer of paper yep I know. yeah so it has like a little bit of that on it but i think that the value was suitable just for the 141 even so like i feel like the 142 like getting both of them for that price was much better and 
when I went and got 133 from the comic shop down south I was talking to, I went there on Black Friday, and one of the things that he, um, the manager was pricing while I was there was they had gotten a collection of early X-Men, but they were all somewhat damaged, but still very presentable. So I got 133 that I was eyeballing a very nice copy for 50 bucks there, but I was like, I don't want to spend 50 bucks. Well, they had this slightly damaged copy for 15 and I was quite ecstatic to buy it for 15 instead of 50 but he had Days of Future Past issues and they were kind of you know kind of beat up they were from this lot they weren't bad but like um I would have spent more on those two than the two that I got on eBay so like I definitely feel like I made the right choice because I even though you know my other friend was saying like that condition isn't worth that price the ability to buy it at a lower price like is you know Worked out. So th- those were the tough ones. Uh, Moira McTaggart and Days of Future Past. I'd say those were the, the tough toughest three issues in my collecting. Okay. F- what book was your favorite to get your hands on? Ah, oh, that's a good... Yeah, there's quite a few. I've been excited about different ones at different times. I think the um, the Moira McTaggart one was, was one of them that I was excited to get, uh, especially Just, when I saw you the gotta, scarcity. You gotta grow. go with one, Paul. Um, <laughs> we'll be here for an hour if you be like, well... <laughs> All of them. <laughs> it's a hard question because it changes. Like, I, I sure. get my heart set on one, and then that's the one that matters the most. And then once I have it, you know, something else does. So I'd say, especially seeing what's happened with the price with it, I got uh, the first appearance of Dark Phoenix for mm. a very reasonable price. Um, it's, like, not the nicest copy of it, but it's, like, very presentable copy but I got it before the movie that featured Dark Phoenix, and that book has gone nuts since then. So, like, it would be hard to get now. Like, it'd be very expensive to get now compared to what I got it for. So, that's one where I was happy to get it anyways. You know, it the cover is awesome. It's, um you know, Jean Grey is Dark Phoenix coming out of the water, the other X-Men floating in the water. I love a, a, a good redhead in comics. Um, before I was bald, oh, yeah. I was oh, a redhead. So, you're talking so about I have a soft spot. Yeah. Yeah. 101. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I want to say I got that for, I either got it for 20 bucks or 40 bucks. I can't remember oh, now. Oh, man. But I got it oh, half geez. price of whatever it was. And yeah, now it's like going you did for very good. a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah because I, I had to pay recent value prices for mine. So, yeah. Ooh, nice. Yeah, that's that's actually the I think the only X Men comic that I kept when I sold my collection too. Good call. Okay, is is there a book that you didn't really appreciate before, but now you appreciate a lot more as a result of this collecting? Whether it's the story or the cover or anything like that. That's an, that's an interesting question, uh, especially since I'm still in the process of reading this X-Men it's not like I'm going through it for a second time or something this is my first read through still and I'm around issue 250 like I I just read the issue past the first appearance of Jubilee that's where I'm oh, at okay um so you know like uh it's I'm still in the the process of my first run of appreciation uh on this I don't think that the collecting impacted the story at all i think that story oftentimes made me eager to get an issue like the first appearance of lockheed was one that i really wanted to get i liked that story i liked you know a lot about it and i wanted to get the issue after reading it the one where juggernaut fights uh colossus in the bar that was an issue i wanted just after reading the story so i think it was more the other way 
I, I would definitely say that there was a lot of the art that I appreciated more buying the issue, like seeing seeing the actual cover rather than just like a digital. Re- it's so easy to just like flip past, you know, digital covers or stuff like that or, you know definitely quite a few especially the earlier ones like it it definitely fostered my growing appreciation of uh the art and style going back to the beginning of claremont's run cool all right yeah that's what i've got nice well i think that that is a very cool collection to have yeah i think you should be very happy and proud of getting that together it's it's nice having it be more concise and uh you know now i'm to the point where i can focus on trying to fill in these later gaps which you know for it being later issues the ones I have left to get, not a lot of them are cheap books. Like a lot of them are are more than things I'm going to find for a dollar. Like for example, the first appearance of X twenty three is in what I need. Um, they're more reasonable than a lot of the other earlier first appearances, of course. But um, like it's definitely still going to be something that I'm slowly pursuing rather than being able to just like go out and you know add forty books to my shopping cart for forty bucks on a website or something like that. Like it's going to take uh, take some work to finish it up. Yeah. Um, but I also have plenty of room to read to get the stuff before I, I need it to continue reading. And I also haven't been reading X-Men very much for probably over a year now. Um, so now that I've done this, I'm I'm actually getting hyped up. I mean, reading God Loves Man Kills gets me uh, back into it also. But I have my next batch of books I need to read uh, in one of those uh, like a comic book folio things. So I've got them yep. ready to go. Cool. Looking forward to it, and I'm I'm kind of glad to narrow my collection down. You know, not have all these you know books that I appreciated, but you know don't really need now. My appreciation's a little more focused. Sounds good. All right, well I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You can find me on Twitter at Bad Deacon. You can find my friend Paul and his monumental X Men collection on Twitter at Who's Paul. You can find all our past episodes wherever you found this one, whether it's our the Overthinking Comics website or it is the uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or however you found this. There's a lot more to listen to, and there'll be more coming up. So thank you for tuning in once again. You, the listener, that is. Not you, Paul, but thank you for tuning in too. <laughs> My thoughts as well. I appreciate that as well. <laughs> Glad to, you know, be the other side of the conversation excellent and we will talk to you later